Well, thank you for joining us today for International Sunday. I'm so excited uh, to be bringing the Word of God for us uh, this morning. So you can go on ahead and take out your Bibles and your sermon notes and your sermon apps. We're going straight to God's Word. Um, have you noticed that um, oftentimes when we can't seem to wrap our heads around something, when we feel like something is a mystery or we try to create a system and uh, uh, an intellectual argument, a formula, a process, a means by which our human brains can try to come to terms with and cope with and comprehend the very thing that we can't seem to understand. You know, we call it logic. It's that moment where if we can't fully grasp a thought, we then reason and we look at the principles of validity in order to successfully assess and explain away everything. But the problem with that is that we can't rely on logic to draw conclusions about why we're here on earth. You can't rely on your DNA and ancestral findings to explain why God made us English and Maori and Samoan and South African and Indian and Chinese. We can't rely on what we feel and what we think about why Auntie Sally has been diagnosed with cancer. We can't uh, fully know why Uncle Eric is finally walking again after being in a coma for two years. It's a mystery. It can't be explained. But have you noticed that we love to put explanations around things? We can't fully grasp the world was created. And so we look to, uh, we can't fully grasp how the world was created. And so we look to formulas, equations, and scientific theories in order to explain how it was created. Our minds can't comprehend the fact that a master architect, an eternal being, an infinite creator outside of our finite dimension spoke a word and the world was created. Our, our brains can't comprehend that. We can't fully grasp that. And so we come up with different explanations of how the world was created. But we can't explain it. We can't perfectly measure how the world was created. We can't wrap a reliable theory around it. It's a mystery. And the problem with our tendencies to create a theory and explanation for everything is that we try to do that with God. But you need to understand God cannot be explained. There are not enough words in all of history to express the magnitude of God. Human logic and comprehension will always fail to perfectly capture and articulate who God is, what He does, and why He does it. God cannot be explained. God cannot be defined in terms of that which we ourselves cannot explain. God simply reveals Himself to us. And as we're about to discover today, God reveals himself little by little, bit by bit. Today, I want to speak on the topic, mystery revealed. And our text this morning is found in Ephesians 3, verse 6 to 12. I'm reading from the NLT version. Here's what it says. This is God's plan, that both Gentiles, people who are not Jewish, and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children, both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given, this is Paul, the privilege of serving him by spreading the good news. Though I am the least deserving of all of God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. 
I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. God bless the reading of his word this morning. I want to place much emphasis on that word mystery that we read in our text. The dictionary defines mystery as something that's strange or not known that has not yet been explained or understood. In a biblical sense, the word mystery is used to refer to truth that's been hidden in the past but was eventually revealed by God. Now, if we're going to understand the biblical meaning of this word mystery, it's important that we don't try to come up with an explanation of one particular reference for the word because the Apostle Paul uses it in a number of different ways to refer to aspects of God's plan. Not only that, but Paul is also just not just talking about some secret knowledge or some secret explanation that, and logical definition, uh, definition that only a select few can come to know. When we talk about a mystery, we're not talking about something that didn't exist. We're talking about something that wasn't revealed yet. Just because it's a mystery, it doesn't mean it didn't exist. No, it was already there. It just hadn't been revealed yet. And so when Paul talks about mystery, he is talking about the plan of God that was hidden in the times of old. It was unknown to mankind, but it was very much in the mind of God. And God has been unfolding this mystery, the, the mystery of his plan since the beginning of time. God has been revealing his plan bit by bit, little by little. What is God's plan, you ask? To answer this question, we need to look at the book of Genesis. We must look at the beginning because little by little, God starts to reveal the mystery of his plan. We read about the creation story. When we read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it's the account of God creating all things. This includes human beings like you and me, His image bearers. We bear the image of God. Whilst this initial part of God's plan seems short, it's theologically significant and absolutely packed with meaning. Because it sets a foundation for everything that the Bible teaches. It sets the stage, it becomes the backdrop to the rest of the Bible's unfolding story. We meet several key characters. We meet God, who is the first and most important person in the story. God created everything. That means He's the source of all things. He is separate from creation. He's distinct. He's transcendent. He's the creator and not the creation. Not only is He transcendent, but He's also sovereign over everything that He's created. This means that nothing is outside of His control and His rule. He is King over all His creation, and He's also satisfied with His creation. Now, we also meet humanity. In Genesis chapter 2, God creates man as His final work of creation. And at this point, the entire story slows all the way down, and we watch a glimpse of God's plan. God's thoughts, God's uh, purpose and design for mankind. Adam is the first representative of humanity in God's story and God gives him responsibilities that are later expressed in other people throughout the Bible. And so already we grasp for the very first time the setting for God's plan. We start to learn some of the major themes and patterns that will continue to be unpacked throughout the rest of the Bible story. They are all working toward an ultimate end. 
But then we come to this point that's called the fall. After creating the world and calling it good, in Genesis chapter 3, we find that everything changed in the world that God created, including his relationship with his created people, his image bearers. We read that Adam, the first man ever created, forever changes the direction of time and space and history with his choice to disobey God. When he was tempted by Satan, Adam disobeyed God. But because of his disobedience, his descendants and the entire human race were plunged into sin, death, and condemnation. And this is where we find ourselves in the story. When the first human couple rebelled against God, when they sinned against God, they were all banished from God's presence. And because of that, so are we. And so how could we regain access to the God who created everything, the God who created us? Will we ever be restored to right relationship with God? Will things ever be made right between us and God? This is the question that Genesis chapter three leaves you asking. How can sinful and rebellious human beings like us ever be acceptable before a just, a holy, a righteous and perfect God given how sin pollutes us and makes us impure? How can we stand before God without being condemned? And you see, the thing that you need to realize is that sin is not just our problem, it's also a problem for God. And here's why. God created us for a relationship with Him, but because of sin, that relationship is now impossible. And now it can be easy for us to say, well, God just needs to overlook our sins, you know? And the problem with that is that if God is going to overlook our sins, it denies who He is as just, and good, and holy, and perfect. So how can we dwell in the presence of this God who is just and good? Where could we possibly find hope? The story goes on to this part called redemption. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises that a son, the seed of the woman, a human offspring, will one day come to crush the enemy who tempted Adam. This enemy is the devil, and the promised son will crush his head. And so even though human beings deserved the punishment, even though we deserve the punishment of death for our sin, death will not get the last word. God says that death itself is gonna be put to death. The fourth part of the story is new creation. The direction of history is toward a new creation. The goal and end of God's redeeming purpose. And so the rest of the Bible with all the stories and the details, the people, the saving events, the institutions, they slowly unfold the mystery of God's plan. And you may be wondering, the Bible is so long. You know, from Genesis all the way to Revelations, that's a long way to read about the, you know, revealing of this mystery. Why doesn't God just reveal the mystery already? Why doesn't he just, you know, why does he have to do it little by little and bit by bit? Here's why. He's preparing us little by little to see and receive the solution he's got in mind as the only solution to our problem. And so the mystery begins to unfold, little by little, generation by generation, year after year, time by time, time after time, God progressively reveals the mystery of his plan. And a few of the ways that he does this is through people, saving events, and institutions. When you look at the people, all throughout scripture, we see countless names of people who God uses as part of his plan. 
every person that we read about is important. Every name and every genealogy moves the story along. For example, Noah and the ark. We read that uh, God told Noah to build the ark. The world became so wicked. And so God said, build the ark uh, to save the people from what was to come. God was absolutely clear and he was quite detailed about how the ark was meant to look. He picked out the wood as well. It had specific measurements, how many windows and how many doors it was meant to have. Not only was the ark the only way of salvation from the flood, the one door of the ark was also the only way to escape the flood. This is what Paul, the author of our text, is saying this morning. Noah and the ark, they're a mystery. They were hidden. It doesn't make any sense in the Old Testament but God is progressively revealing the mystery of his plan. Little by little, he's revealing that there's a greater way to salvation. Little by little, he's revealing that there's a greater door. We see the same thing in saving events, uh, like the Passover. When Pharaoh refused to let the people of Israel uh, go from slavery and bondage, God brought 10 plagues on, the, uh, on Egypt. The 10th and final plague was, that, was the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. And so on the night of the Passover, God instructed the people of Israel to slaughter a spotless lamb and mark the doors and the doorposts with the blood. And when the Lord comes to strike down the Egyptians, when he saw the blood on the door and the doorposts, he would pass over the house. Again, it's a mystery. The Passover doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but God is progressively revealing the mystery. He's revealing that the Passover is going to point, is pointing to a greater passing over. It might not have made sense to Israel, but it made sense to God. It may, not have, been, it may have been hidden to Israel, but God knew exactly what he was doing. He was the, revealing the mystery of his plan little by little, bit by bit. We see the same thing happening in institutions. Institutions were methods and customs and ordinances and ceremonies that the people of Israel carried out. And one of them you see is um, patent in the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, God told the Jews to build the tabernacle and the tabernacle means a tent or a dwelling. It means a meeting place. The tabernacle was supposed to serve as a symbol of God's presence dwelling in amongst his people. And so God gives very specific instructions about what should be inside the tent. It had three parts. It had an outer court. It had the holy place and the holy of holies. In the outer court, you had this thing called the brazen altar. It was the place where the priest would give up an offering. To enter the tabernacle without giving up a sacrifice meant, that, meant certain death. And so the priests had to minister at the brazen altar. They needed to be cleansed by blood before they approached this next room called the holy place. In the outer court, there's also this thing, this thing called the bronze laver. This was like a basin. It had water in it. And every time the priest entered the tabernacle, they had to cleanse themselves of all the defilement from their hands and their feet. And so before they could enter and even step into the holy place, they had to cleanse themselves. And so you would move from the outer court to the, uh, the place of sacrifice and offering to the holy place. And in the holy place, nothing is bronze. Everything is gold. There's a golden lampstand in there. And this particular candlestick was one piece. It was made of gold and it had to be kept burning and it could never go out. Also in the holy place, there's a table of shrewbread. Shrewbread means bread of the face, bread of the presence. It means holy bread. The purpose of this table was to provide food and fellowship for the priest. Furthermore, you read of the altar of the incense, the Ark of the Covenant, but even then, 
the tabernacle was no longer going to be needed. It was going to become deficient because it was only pointing to something that was greater. Little by little, bit by bit, God is revealing the mystery of His plan. The people of God throughout all of history Look at the promise made in Genesis 3.15 about a seed, a human offspring who will one day come to defeat the enemy. Person by person, event by event, institution by institution, God is revealing how He is going to solve this great problem of our sin. He is revealing bit by bit the hidden mystery of His plan. Throughout the saving events in the Bible, they go searching for the fulfillment of the promise. It didn't happen in the Exodus. It didn't happen in the crossing of the Red Sea. It didn't happen at the time of the Passover. It didn't happen through the manna in the wilderness. It didn't happen through the bitter waters that were being healed. Throughout every institution in the Bible, they go searching for the fulfillment of this promise. It didn't happen in the temple. It didn't happen through the Old Testament sacrificial ordinances. It didn't happen through the Old Testament customs and rituals. Throughout every prominent figure in the Bible, they go searching for the fulfillment of this promise. Moses couldn't do it. Aaron couldn't do it. Samson couldn't do it. Joshua couldn't do it. Gideon couldn't do it. Jeremiah couldn't do it. Elijah couldn't even do it. And so we get to this point in the Bible where it looks like we've come to the final words of this mystery that's been unfolding and it's coming to a close with these words. Malachi 4, verse 5 to 6. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. God is simply saying, I know all of these past prominent figures, institutions and saving events were deficient. I know that they all failed, but I've still got a plan. It may be hidden to you right now, but I've still got a plan. You may not know it right now, but I've still got a plan. And so the final book of the Old Testament comes to a close and it seems like sin has gotten the final say. It seems like death has gotten the final say. It seems like God has run out of ways to save His people from destruction. And so the people of God wait. They wait. They're waiting on God. They're waiting for God to come to the rescue. They're waiting on God to reveal the hidden mystery. They're waiting for God to show up. Have you ever felt like you've been waiting on God and it seems like He don't be doing nothing? You're waiting for a word. You're waiting for a sign. You're waiting for a miracle. You're waiting for a breakthrough. You're waiting for an answer to your problem. You're waiting and it feels like God is doing nothing. The people of God have been waiting. In fact, they've been waiting for 400 years. But there's nothing but silence in the air. There's nobody to come to the rescue. No leader is coming to the rescue. There are no institutions and no rituals and no ceremonies. There are no more saving events. But after 400 years, in the middle of the waiting, in the middle of the silence, in the middle of the darkness, God speaks. But this time He would speak in a different way. It would be better. Hebrews says that God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times in various ways. But in these last days, God is speaking to us by His Son. Suddenly, the mystery is being revealed. 
suddenly in Matthew chapter 1, the first book of the New Testament, the first book after the silence, Matthew starts the book and says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Suddenly in Luke, we read, today in the town of David, a Savior is born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. Suddenly in John, we read that John saw Jesus coming and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Finally, the mystery of God's plan has been revealed. The things of God that were once hidden are now being revealed. And they're being revealed through Jesus Christ. God isn't explained. God isn't even argued about. God isn't even fussed about. He is revealed. See, you're sitting in here. You're not sitting in here because someone explained him to you. You're here because he revealed himself to you. And it may have been through the preaching, through the word, through the singing. Some of us weren't even in church when God revealed himself to us. You may have been at the house. You may have been in the club. You may have been in the car. You may have been in the beach. But God just gave you a glimpse. He revealed himself to you. All of a sudden, you got convicted of things that you never used to be convicted about. All of a sudden, you decided to change your life. And the more that you walk with Him, you are taking things off every day. You are changing your habits. You are changing your behaviors. You're changing your ways because God continues to reveal Himself to you. If I can ask the keys to join me. To every single person in the room today who is still unsure about God, who is still trying to make sense of all of this God stuff, you need to know today that Jesus is the manifest revelation of God. That means that what was once hidden is now being revealed in Jesus Christ. And so if you want to know God, look at Jesus. Read about Jesus. Follow his every movement. Learn about what he did. Look at what his death and resurrection accomplished. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of every single thing that the Old Testament talks about. Everything points to Jesus. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, the core message has always been Jesus. In Genesis, He's the Word of God creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, He's the Passover lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorposts of our hearts so that we could escape the bonds of slavery. In Leviticus, He's the temple, the holy place where we meet God. In Numbers, He is your ever-present guide, your pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, He's the coming prophet who's greater than Moses. In Joshua, He's the commander of the Lord's army leading you into the promised land. In Judges, He's the broken Savior rising up to rescue you. In Ruth, He's your kinsman, kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, he's the pure-hearted shepherd who's rushing out to face the giant on your behalf. In 1st and 2nd Kings, he's the righteous ruler. In 1st and 2nd Chronicles, he's the restorer of the kingdom. In Ezra, he's the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of that which is broken. In Esther, he's your advocate. In Job, he's your living redeemer. In Psalms, he's your shepherd. In Proverbs, He's wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, He's the meaning to life. In the Song of Solomon, He's a loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, He's the Prince of Peace. In Jeremiah, He's the weeping prophet. 
In Lamentations, he's the one who assumes God's wrath for us. In Ezekiel, he's the river of life bringing uh, healing to the nations. In Daniel, he's the one in the fire with us. In Hosea, he's the ever faithful husband, even when we turn away from him. In Joel, he's the restorer of every single thing that the locust has eaten away. In Amos, he's your burden bearer. In Obadiah, he's the judge of all the earth. In Jonah, he's the prophet cast out into the storm so that you could be brought in. In Micah, he's the everlasting ruler born to us in Bethlehem. In Nahum, he's your stronghold. In Habakkuk, he's your watchman. In Zephaniah, he's the one mighty to save. And Haggai, he's the cleansing fountain. And Zechariah, he's the branch of David, the one who was pierced for us. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. But the Bible doesn't end there. <laughs> he wasn't just promised. He wasn't just hidden in the Old Testament. He came. He was revealed in the New Testament. And you know what that means? In Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the son of God. And Luke, he's the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. And John, he's the Word become flesh. And Acts, he's Christ, the risen Lord. And Romans, he's the justifier. And Corinthians, he's the Spirit at work in the churches. And Galatians, he's the righteousness imputed to us for by faith. And Ephesians, he's our righteous armor. And Philippians, he's the God who meets our every need. And Colossians, he's the firstborn of all creation. And Thessalonians, he's the one descending from heaven with a shout coming to meet us together in the clouds. And Timothy, he's the one mediator between God and man. And Titus, he's our faithful pastor. And Philemon, he's our redeemer. And Hebrews, he's our great high priest. And James, he's the life at work in our faith. And Peter, he's our living cornerstone. And 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he's our advocate pleading his righteousness in our place. And Jude, he's God, our Savior, the one who keeps us from stumbling. And in Revelations... He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. It's only ever been about Him. It will only ever be about Him. He's the center of it all. From the Old Testament right through to the New Testament. It will only ever be about Jesus. The core message has always been Jesus. And my friend, that Jesus, he came, he lived, he died on the cross in our place, he rose again, and he didn't just come to merely identify with us. No, he came to do a work that we ourselves couldn't do. But because of what Jesus has done, that's good news for us as well. Here's what Paul says in the text that we read this morning. This is God's plan. Both Gentiles, people who are not Jews, and Jews who believe the good news, share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, this was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of Jesus, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly, and confidently into God's presence. This is the beauty of the mystery that Paul is talking about in our text today. This immeasurable wealth of Christ is not limited to just people who are Jewish, 
It's not limited to just the people of Israel. That means that the gospel of Jesus is not just for the Jewish people. It's for the Maori. It's for the English. It's for the Samoan. It's for the Cook Island. It's for the Afrikaans. It's for the Tongan. It's for the Chinese, it's for the Indian, it's for the Filipino, it's for the Fijian, it's for the Sri Lankan, it's for the New Wayan, it's for every single person who puts their faith in Jesus. The wonder of this mystery that's been revealed to us is that God's people will no longer be identified by their birthplace. They will no longer be identified by the blood sacrifices and rituals and ceremonies but by their faith in Jesus Christ. And you need to know today that Jesus is the mystery revealed. And because of that, you and I can come boldly to God by simply putting our faith in Jesus. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. God, we thank you for your presence. Continue to do that which you are doing here in the room, Lord. We thank you for your word. We honor you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. Church, can I encourage you just to close your eyes and bow your heads one more time? And you might be in the service and you feel like Jesus has been revealed to you through the preaching of the word. And you might be saying, well, what must I do to be saved? Well, the Bible's clear. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so in a moment, I'm going to lead us all in a prayer if you want to do just that. If you're here in this place and you're saying, today I've felt that Jesus is revealed to me because he's not just the God of all nations, he's the God of you. He didn't just die for the nations, he died for you. And if you're in this place and you're saying, today I want to give my heart to Jesus, in a moment I'm going to lead you in a prayer and give you an opportunity to do just that. And so with every eye closed and every head bowed, if that's you today, you're saying, today I see Jesus and I want to be saved, I'm going to count to three. And at the end of that, I ask that you raise your hand. One, two, three, if that's you, raise your hand. You're saying, today, I want to give my life to Jesus. Awesome. Awesome. Church, repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Today, I give my life to Jesus, holding nothing back. I turn from sin. I follow you. Thanks to you, I'm free in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Cheers, you can clap your hands. That's awesome.